All right, good evening. Let's uh, get right into our Bible study tonight. Going over the life of Christ, I hope that you are enjoying hearing it as much as I am enjoying teaching it. I love teaching any part of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, prophecies, Proverbs, the Gospels, the Epistles, but I, I believe that most pastors would say there is definitely something special about teaching and preaching through the Gospels. I know that's the case for me. Just being reminded of who our Savior is, the, the perfect balance of love, uh, mercy paired with truth and justice is such a great example for us as believers. And for those who find themselves straying more to one side than the other, a church or a Christian who maybe is accused of too much love, uh, everything's love, too much mercy, there's no truth, there's no justice, everything is allowed. Uh, if, that's, if you've been accused of that, I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not saying you should change what you do. I'm saying you should, if there's any reevaluation, do so through the Gospels. Look at Christ and say, all right, I'm not going to change because this person told me that, but am I in line with the proper balance that Christ showed? Same thing if the accusation is made of, well, you're all truth and there's no mercy, there's no love. Go to the Gospels and, again, align yourself with Christ. So here we are in Luke chapter 12. We are going over uh, not the Sermon on the Mount, but you know, essentially like a second sermon, a uh, long series of truths given by Christ. This is not the Sermon on the Mount. It's a separate time. But we're at the tail end of this series of short messages that Christ gives in the book of Luke chapter 12. So let's take a look now at uh, verse number 49. And what an unusual way to start this next section of his series. He says in verse 49, I am come to send fire on the earth. And what will I, if it be already kindled? Okay, that word fire I think, you know, when, you, when someone screams, fire, 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 we automatically think, oh, bad thing, get out of the house, right? Uh, I, I would hope that would be your response. But in the Bible, the, the word fire can have another meaning, this idea of, of fire in your heart, you know, a kindling fire in your heart could, could kind of be a good connotation, you could say, in a spiritual sense of, of you're on fire for God, although that phrase is not used in the Bible, this idea that someone's heart is on fire for the Lord or, or kindled for the Lord. I get that. Uh, but, but in verse 49, we are not talking about in a spiritual sense within the heart and soul of someone that God is coming here to light a fire in your heart. That is not what he's saying here. He is not saying that I'm come to, you might say, revive the hearts of men or to, to place the, the uh, revival fire in the hearts of men. That, that is not the case. This is more so in line with what you might say in the Old Testament when God speaks of judgment and fire associated with judgment in both the Old and New Testament. That is what he's talking about here, the, the judgment attached to this word fire. That basically God is saying, I'm coming to judge the world, and I'm coming to enact uh, the, the judgment on the world that is deserved because of the choices they have made. He, he goes on to say in, uh, let's go and skip down. To verse 51, suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth, I tell you nay, but rather division. So that kind of gives us the context of these verses, that this word fire isn't necessarily something we would want or enjoy, 
but it is something that's going to happen. Fire is going to cause destruction. Fire specifically in verse 51 is going to cause division. And so you see the title of this short little sermonette within his larger message, A House Divided. And so Christ is basically telling us that although Christ does offer peace on earth, goodwill towards God and man, when Christ was born, that's what the angels said. They said, hey, Christ is here. He's born. Goodwill towards men, peace on earth. If you accept it. You see, when Christ was born, that didn't mean that the whole world had peace. We know that. Shortly after Christ's uh, birth, we find that some one to two years later, we find that uh, his, his birth is discovered by the, by the local king, and he's not too thrilled that someone else might have been born that might usurp his throne. So what does he do? He sends guards to Bethlehem to kill all of the young boys. I think it was two or three years old and, and younger. All of them killed. That's, that's not a sign of peace to me. So the angels are not saying that the world will experience peace. There will never be wars again. There will never be chaos again. The angels are saying, because Christ is here, you can have peace with God. But if you refuse that peace, if you reject that God, if you say to Christ, you do not exist, you are not alive, if you say to God, there is no God, if you, if you claim of his word, it is not true, then although the peace is available you haven't embraced it for yourself, then all that's left is the fire, the wrath of God on your life, the judgment of God in your life. And so I believe that in verse 49, that is what we're speaking of. We're speaking of the essential decision God is forcing on mankind. No, you cannot ride the fence. No, you cannot just say, well, God, I don't think you exist, but I'm not, I have nothing against you, God. Hey, I'm not choosing a side, God. I'm not for your church, but I'm not against your church. I'm not for you, God, but I'm not against you. I'm not for your word, but I'm not against your word. You know, God, I'm kind of just doing my own thing. You leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. And if you do exist, at least I did nothing bad. Maybe you'll let me into heaven anyways. God says, no, it doesn't work that way. You have to make a decision. You either accept me or you reject me. There is no middle line. By refusing to make a decision, you are making a decision. And so he goes on to verse 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with. Now, we often think in current culture, baptism being dunked underwater, baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and Holy Ghost and brought up. If, if you're listening online and you're, you're, you're a Catholic or another denomination religion, you might be sprinkled with baptism. I'm not going to get in tonight the variances of baptisms. The idea here has nothing to do with a baptism or a, a, a recognition or in some way an attachment to Christ. That's not what he's saying here when it comes to baptism. This word baptism uh, literally means immersion. And Christ is basically saying, there is an immersion that I must be immersed with. Well, it's a little ambiguous here. It's a little uh, confusing what that thing is that Christ is going to be immersed with. What, what is Christ going to be surrounded by shortly? What is Christ going to experience shortly? Well, we know when we read the rest of the Gospels, he's obviously talking about his death on the cross. He's talking about his own persecution. And he's saying, there is a deed that I must do. There is, there is something I must experience that I came to accomplish and I will accomplish. And my baptism is not the easy dunking underwater and being brought up. My baptism is being put on the cross and dying so that when you are baptized, it actually holds some significance. Our baptism of water is only significant because of what Christ was baptized with death on the cross. So again, this whole verse, this whole section isn't dealing with the, 
the warm, fuzzy, spiritual, revival side that we think fire might be attached to. It's dealing with judgment. It's dealing with hard decisions. He says, uh, and how am I straightened till it be accomplished? Straightened means focus, means going in one direction. Christ is saying, uh, until I am baptized with this baptism, until I accomplish what I came to do, I have only one path to take, and that is toward this baptism. This is the path I'm going to take to the cross. There was no decision that Christ would make that would steer him away from his ultimate goal, the cross. Look, there's a lot of decisions that we make that affect our day-to-day lives, a lot of decisions we make throughout the week that are going to determine if that week is a good week or a bad week, a successful week or a week we could have done better with. But ultimately, there are only so many decisions we can make that would take us from God. And Christ isn't saying that I'm not going to do anything but die on the cross. He's saying I'm not going to do anything that would keep me from ending up there. That's why I came, and that's what I'm going to do. In verse 51, suppose ye that I came to give peace on earth. I tell you nay, but rather division. All right, we're back to this verse now. I've already discussed the angel saying peace on earth. This seems, verse 51, to contradict the very announcement that the angels made. By the way, in Luke is where we find that announcement, the beginning of Luke. That very same announcement by the angels seems to contradict what Christ is saying here, but it doesn't. And I've already clarified. The angels said, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. That's God to man. Christ is saying, I didn't come that there would be world peace. It's not the same. Peace with God is not world peace. And if we were in some miraculous way to attain world peace, that does not mean we have peace with God. They are separate decisions that need to be made. World peace isn't possible until Christ comes back a second time and reigns on earth as king. We're not going to see world peace until then. But we can have peace with God now. And so Christ is saying, do you think that I came this time to bring world peace? By the way, did the disciples think that? Yes, they did. That's right. Some of you are shaking their head. They did think that. They thought Christ was going to bring peace by doing what? Destroying his enemies, specifically the Romans and all those who opposed Christ. By the way, that's not so far-fetched because that's exactly what Christ will do when he comes back a second time. That is how he'll attain world peace. At the end of the seven-year tribulation, when Christ comes back down, his second coming, he is going to destroy his enemies, and that is how he's going to attain world peace. The only ones left will be those who've accepted him. And then those who are born into the perfect kingdom will have to make a decision to, to adhere to the rule and order of Christ or to be judged quickly and swiftly by the king of the kings and king, king of the world at that time. So he says, but I didn't come now to bring peace. He says, unfortunately, what I have brought is what? Verse 51, division. I didn't come to bring peace. I came not necessarily to bring division, but my coming has brought division. All right, Christ's goal was not to divide the world. Christ's goal was to come and save the world, but by doing so, the world now has a choice to be saved or not be saved. Now there is a division. There is a line drawn in the sand. I was listening to the radio just yesterday. You might have heard the same comments I did because um, on Caleb, they'll often have this conversation every like 15 minutes, half an hour, hour. It's just like they keep talking about the same thing. I only tune in for the short drives I have back and forth from home. But I imagine they talked about it throughout yesterday morning. And it was discussed on the radio, what is the one thing 
that the unsaved, unchurched, unbelievers have against the churched believers. Right away, I thought, well, there's actually, in my head, there's possibly two things that they probably, they hate most about us. I forget how it was described or how it was said, but something like, what do unbelievers, unchurched, hate most about believers, churched? They may not have used the word hate, but that's basically the gist. So right away, I thought, too, I thought, all right, it's either they think we're a bunch of hypocrites and they hate our hypocrisy, or they hate us because we follow truths, you know, something like that, right? We follow truth because we, we live lives that, that are different than theirs, whatever. And so I listened a little longer as I was driving home, and they said, so the, through the poll, through what, whatever way this was gathered together, they said the one thing people hate most about those who go to church, they said, is that you're too judgmental. So, I mean, in my opinion, that was the second one, right? We live truth differently than theirs, and we're calling them out on it. And they, and they said that's what they hate most about Christians is that they're so judgmental. So I thought, well, I'm not shocked to hear that one. It was one of my top two guesses anyways. <laughs> but then here's where it got a little, um, I, was a little I was a little taken back by the conversation that continued because then the radio, we called them jocks when I was a kid. I don't know what they call them now, announcer, host, whatever. The radio host then said, call us and tell us what you think and what are ways where we, are, we can be not so judgmental. And how can we remedy this fact, basically? that The radio host was saying, what can we as Christians do so that this isn't how the unchurched, unsaved feel? How can we as Christians make it so that we aren't so judgmental? So then, you know, I ended up being home shortly after. I didn't hear it, but heard two or three callers. And, you know, well, we can do this to not be so judgmental. One woman said, I always make sure that I always try to view it from their eyes so I'm not so judgmental. I am not saying that we need to go around judging people, all right? There's no benefit to calling everyone out in our lives on their sin. My concern is, do we really believe as Christians that we can be at peace with the enemies of God? At peace? No. Can we live in peace? Can we as Christians live in a peaceful manner? Yes, we're called to. We are called to be peacemakers. But the decision isn't just ours alone, is it? To be at peace with someone both sides have to decide we want to be at peace. Because for just one side alone to say we want to be at peace, but the other side we want to be at war isn't enough. And Russia and Ukraine are a prime example of how that looks on a massive scale. The Ukrainians want peace. Russia does not. Russia wants Ukraine. <laughs> and so Russia's not going to have peace, at least for now. All right, so does the world want peace? I think that's the bigger question. Not so much... How as we as Christians can live in a way that doesn't bring judgment on the world? How can we live in a way that, that allows us to all live in unity and peace? The real question is, does the world want that with Christians? That's what I'd be asking. That's what I, I do ask. I can tell you what the answer is. The world would say, yes, that's what they would say. Yes, we want peace. Okay, so then my second question is, how can it be attained? Their answer would be, stop believing this. <laughs> stop believing the Bible. Stop following the Bible. Stop Stop believing in a God that doesn't exist. Stop, as I, as I read one uh, gentleman, obviously an atheist claim, stop uh, selling a, a, um, a, a, an invisible entity to people. In a sense, you know, stop telling people about God in his mind that does not exist, right? Stop selling an invisible entity. That, that's the only way the world as a whole. I'm not saying there aren't people who are unsaved that are okay with us as Christians, live and let live. I know there are people like that. The world as a whole. What would we have to do as Christians to be at peace with the world? We'd have to abandon our Christianity. 
We'd have to abandon the morals and truth of this book to be at peace with the world. Because the world as a whole is not going to come over to the side of truth of God's word. They will not as a whole do that. So they are saying if you want peace, you've got to come over to our side. And that I am not willing to do. And so we are back right where we started. There is a line. There is division. And both sides will see themselves as right. Look, we as Christians are convinced we're on the right side. And I'm fully convinced of that through God's word. The world is just as convinced. Don't think that they are less sure on their side of the line that we are. And, and it is not going to be our logic, our reason that will change their mind. It must be the truth of God's word opening up opportunities for the spirit of God to convict their heart. Once the Holy Spirit convicts their heart with God's truth, then and only then do I think they have a possible chance of, of coming over to the side of God, and then we would have peace with them. So going back to what the radio said yesterday, here's the thing. I am totally all for not being judgmental and, and uh, coming across as, as judgy to everyone you know. That there is no benefit to that. But I think the problem is bigger than just be nice to people. Because I've seen it in my own life, and I, I, it's becoming more and more evident as the, as the culture is moving along, that you can be nice, you can be kind, but when they say things now like silence is violence, and that is a common phrase being screamed and yelled and, and, and tossed our way, that essentially if we are silent on the issues that are important to them because we disagree with the foundational philosophy for their issue, with the foundational truth or lack thereof for their issue, if we are silent because we disagree, in their opinion, we are part of the violence. So the only way for them to be okay with us is for us to embrace every part of their truth or lack thereof. That's the way that we find peace with them, and that I will not do. Are there parts of of the world's philosophy that we would agree on? Sure. Things like, you know, don't abuse people and, and, and uh, not going to get into, into depth of how that might look. But the problem is everything else they attach to that, I, I can't agree with. Uh, can, I, can we both agree that, that everyone, regardless of their skin color, should be treated equally? No doubt. I totally agree with that. The problem is everything else, they, a lot of other things, they attach to, to their definition of what equality looks like. I just can't agree with everything they attach to it. And so, in their head, I'm the, vict- I'm, I'm the violent one. And so there's division. Now, what I would recommend to those listening tonight is don't cause a divide where it's not needed. And that's, I think, the bigger truth for Christians, and unfortunately, that's the bigger fault for Christians. We are so divided unnecessarily I, I will stand on truth, the truth that really matters, Christ, salvation, God's glory. I will stand on that. The word of God being true, completely true and preserved, I will stand on that. Because once you put a crack in that truth, the word of God is only partially true. It's a good book with good stories. Even if someone was to convince me that they're saved, uh, I'd be glad of that. But if they start saying the word of God is not fully true, or if there's even one verse in it that's not true, you're open, it's like putting a crack in a dam. The water will burst through and the whole dam will fall apart eventually. That is what would happen because if part of God's word is not true, 
then what part of God's Word can we know is true? And it's not just being pragmatic. It's being, if our truth is based on God's Word, if what we know about Christ is based on His Word, if what we know about salvation is based on His Word, if what we know and believe about heaven and ourselves and sin is based on God's Word, but God's Word cannot be trusted, then we don't really know anything. And that itself is a problem for me. So there are certain beliefs that I will stand on, but there are many others I honestly do not want to divide over. I am more than happy to, to call a Christian brother or sister if they agree with me on, uh, on, you know, standard of dress one way or the other. You know, there are people who think that we're liberal because women in our church wear pants. I don't, I'm not bothered by that. I'm happy to be a brother in Christ to them. It doesn't faze me one bit. There are those who may uh, dress even a little more, what you might call liberal, than what we would be comfortable with this church. Again, I don't care because that's not an issue that's going to change someone's salvation. Music, I don't care. It doesn't bother me nearly as much as, as it does a lot of other churches. And yet there are churches who will divide over these things and, and, and issues that are even a lot less of an issue than that. You know what? There are churches who have something called second, third uh, division where basically they will divide over uh, friendship with you. If you're their friend and you believe everything exactly as they do and you are their friend, great, until you get another friend, if you befriend another church or another Christian who disagrees with your first friend, they'll now divide with you, not because you disagree with them, but because your friend disagrees with them. Churches will say, we are together, we are unified, I'll preach at your church, you'll preach at my church, because we're like almost exactly alike, mirror images, if that's even possible. But whoa, 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 you had a preacher from the church across town preach at yours, and they don't agree with us, now we divide with both of you. It's like, Churches are looking for, for areas to divide, and they don't need to. There's already enough division. Let's not make more of it. But that is what Christ is saying. He's saying, my coming will cause division. He actually says in verse 52, from henceforth there shall be five in one house divided, three against two and two against three. Christ is not forcing this, but Christ's presence is essentially requiring it. The father shall be defied against the son, the son against the father, the mother against the daughter, the daughter against the mother, the mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Close family members will now disagree on what is truth. Close family members will now disagree on who is Christ. And in my experience... Most of the time, I have found that Christians are more willing to divide from God than they are close family. That if they are faced with the conflict of walk away from God or walk away from family, they will walk away from God. Christians of all ages, teenagers, young adults, middle-aged, senior saints, they cannot fathom distancing themselves or allowing their family to distance from them, whether in-laws or direct relations. They, their heart cannot take it. I've known some who I, I believe are truly saved. I, I still, to this day, don't doubt their salvation. I do not. I believe it was a sincere salvation experience. But I, I, I've been in ministry now 20 years, and I can't tell you... I, how many people I've known, they knew um, in-law, 
child, parent, sibling, whatever. They knew that they were in the wrong, that, that the one they loved was in the wrong, living a life contrary to truth. They knew it. But they also knew if they kept serving God in truth, the one they loved would inevitably walk away because the one they loved could not stand living their life against truth, being around someone who lived in truth. They knew that happens over and over again. So the one who I believe is saved stopped going to church, stopped living a life of truth, knowing it was not the best choice, but choosing it because they did not want to lose that family member. And I think in their head, they probably justified. When they get to that point, they usually don't talk to me much over the years, you know. Conversations easily easily dwindle to nothing at that point. So I can only make assumptions, but I assume in their head they must have said things like, God would never want us to, to cause division with family. God wouldn't want a divided family. They would probably say things like, I heard on the radio, it's not our place to judge. I get that. I know that God is the great judge. But that phrase, it's not our place to judge, is taken way out of context and taken way too far. You are, at the very least, supposed to judge yourself. (laughs) And so when you abandon God and join sinners, at least judge yourself. Whether or not you judge them, judge yourself. You've made the wrong choice. But God says, my coming will require people to decide. It It will bring division. Now, I can tell you from firsthand, it is a very hard thing. I've got family, close family, that that's exactly what it's resulted in, division. And it is a decision I was willing to make and am willing to make because I love God, because I love truth, and because I love my family, my children. I will make that decision. does not mean it's easy. But to this day, 38 years old, I still do not regret choosing God over people that I, to this day, still love. I don't love them less. I'm sure they believe I do. And I, and I sense they'd be justified in believing that because there's really little to no interaction that we have at this point in our lives. But I do love them, but I just love God and truth more. I wasn't looking to divide. I didn't force the division. But I am standing on truth, and I am going to stay with truth. And those who are not and will not inevitably are going to be walking away from where I am. That is hard for some of you to hear. Some some of you online, hard to hear. But it is a warning Christ gave us 2,000 years ago. We should not be shocked about this. Christ saw it coming. Christ warned us of this coming. Which should only make us more and more desirous for his perfect kingdom when that division will be no more. And all of those who are saved will enjoy perfect unity for eternity. But until then, there will be division. The world will not have peace. There will not be peace between Christianity and the world. It's not going to happen. The prince of this world, Satan, hates the creator of this world, God. And neither one will join the other side. Let's go to the next section, final section of Christ's message here in Luke chapter 12 in verse 54. 
And he said also to the people, when you see a cloud rise out of the west straightway, you say, there cometh a shower. And so it is. And we talked about this the other week where he's talking about, he's saying, you're hypocrites. You're, you're claiming to be able to tell the weather and what the, what the weather is. So obviously stating it's going to rain, it's going to be dark, it's going to be cloudy, whatever. But you can't even see the spiritual truths that are right in front of your eyes. He says in verse 56, you can't discern the time. So he's calling them hypocrites for not even knowing as spiritual leaders what they claim to should and should be able to know. Verse 57, yea, and why even of yourselves judge ye not what is right? When thou goest with thine adversary to the magistrate as thou art in the way. All right, so this is, this is intriguing. Christ is calling out the hypocrisy of these listeners, not all spiritual leaders, not all Pharisees, just general crowd of people. And he's saying, you claim, you Jews claim to know the truth above the Gentiles, above the Greeks specifically, above the Romans specifically. You claim to be the foretellers of truth, the heralders of truth, the followers of truth. You claim to be the nation of truth, Jews. And yet... Your understanding of truth is so limited, you can't see the truth right in front of you. <laughs> oh, you, can, you understand the weather patterns better than you know truth, godly, scriptural, biblical truth. And then he goes on to a truth, and, and there's so many truths that I think I would have chosen to deal with. Uh, you, you guys don't understand salvation. You don't understand God the Father. You don't understand the Trinity. You don't understand my second coming. That's none, of, none of those truths are the ones he, he calls them out on directly after referring to them as hypocrites regarding their lack of knowledge of truth. You know what he goes into? Stubbornness. Which, you know, as you think about it more, I guess it makes sense because what is keeping them from knowing the real truth? Stubbornness. What is keeping them from accepting Christ? As Savior, stubbornness. What is keeping them from, from recognizing they themselves are sinners? Stubbornness. And so he deals with stubbornness, but in what way? In, in uh, verse 58, he says, here you are. You and your adversary are walking to the magistrate, the one who has the first decision on who's right and wrong. Now, the implication of the next two verses is that the one going with the friend, the adversary, basically them, they know they are wrong. They know they made a mistake. They know they messed up. They know there's evidence against them. Their, the, their adversary, the one they do not like and do not like them, the one they've wronged is taking them to court. And yet on their way to court, they still refuse to apologize. They still refuse to get it right. They still refuse to make things right and say, hey, you know what? You're right. All right. I, I moved my fence line. I apologize. Let me move it back. Let me pay you the damages. I get it. I get it. I left that hole open. Your, your, your cow fell in there and died. Let me pay you for the cow, right? They refuse to make it right. And Christ is basically saying, on your way to the magistrate, in your stubbornness, you have a chance. You won't. Verse 58, as thou art in the way, give diligence that thou mayest be delivered from him. Do whatever it takes to right the wrong before it comes to the magistrate. Because once you get to the magistrate, it says here, uh, once he's been delivered, to, uh, don't be delivered him, lest he hail thee to the judge, and the judge delivered to the officer, and the officer cast you in prison. And verse 59, I tell thee, thou shalt not depart thence until thou hast paid the very last mite, or very last penny, very last uh, farthing, very last amount of money. He says, once it gets into the court of law, now justice is going to happen, and you're going to lose. You know, we in a spiritual sense, are so stubborn. 
during worship services, God works on our hearts and says, this is what needs to be dealt with. Change this. Ah, I refuse to, God. No, you can't make me. Go talk to your brother or sister in Christ. Apologize. No, God, it's too embarrassing. Tell your spouse you are wrong. No, God, they're wrong too. Whatever it might be, you are so stubborn. You will not right the wrong. God says there will come a point where it will now fall under judgment, and when judgment begins, you will end up paying the cost of your stubbornness. And so the Jews, obviously, were very stubborn spiritually. How about we? Are we stubborn? Do we refuse to humble ourselves before God, before our brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we refuse to humble ourselves before our family and admit our wrongs? And our refusal to be humble, we will pay a heavy price, the stubborn heart. Luke chapter 13. Now, a fig tree is mentioned multiple times in the gospel. This is not the only time we hear about a fig tree. But this is a very important time, and I'd like to read these verses in Luke 13, verse 1. There were present that season some that told him of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. All right. The Galileans were Jews who lived in Galilee. Okay, so they're not um, Gentiles or Greeks or Romans. These are Jews. And the Galileans, according to other sources of Scripture, specifically Acts, talking about the Galileans and kind of this scenario here, um, the Galileans, it seemed there was a large group of them who were uh, political zealots or political rebels. It is not that these Galileans were uh, hateful to the Romans because the Romans were not Jews and didn't worship God. They were hateful to the Romans because the Romans' politics did not allow them the freedom they believed they deserved. Essentially, these Galileans were fighting a political war. It was not a spiritual war. I have no doubt the Galileans turned it into a spiritual war. I have no doubt the Galileans claimed we are doing this for God and we want to serve God and the Romans are, are hindering us. But it's, if you look at even the Gospels, Jesus Christ himself is allowed to walk free and preach. He's only brought uh, at the end before Pilate because uh, the religious leaders themselves lied about him. And then he was given the opportunity to walk away, but Christ knew he had to die, and so he stayed there. The Romans did give the Jews, at least at this time, a lot of freedom to worship. So the issue could not have been a spiritual one. The issue was a political one. And these Galileans wanted to fight a political war, and they lost. That's a shocker, right? The Galileans, a small part of Israel, losing to the whole Roman Empire, (laughs) they lost. And so this idea of their blood being mingled with their sacrifices means that as the Galileans were worshiping and having sacrifices, the Roman army marched in that town and killed these political rebels on the same day of their worship service. And so on the ground was the blood of the sacrifice and the blood of the Galileans that they sacrificed for a political war. Now, we're told that there were those present in verse 1 who brought this to Christ's attention. Why do you think they did that? I think they were looking for Christ's reaction. Well, what do you think about that, Christ? Were the Galileans bold uh, heroes, or were they, were they foolish rebels? Christ, are you on the side of the Galileans, or are you on the side of the Romans? I think it's another way to trap Christ. Because let's think about it. If Christ said the Romans, the Romans did what was right, the Galileans should not have been political rebels, I think a lot of his followers right there would have said, how dare you take the side of the Romans? But then if Christ took the side of the Galileans and said, well, the Galileans were justified, a lot of Jews would have thought, oh, can I rebel against the Roman Empire? Are you here to help us rebel? And, you know, he would have essentially encouraged a rebellion. 
So I, I guarantee you there were people that were thinking, we got him. There is no right answer to this question. As a leader, you can't give a politically, uh, a politically correct answer. It's either one side or the other. Whatever side you're for, you're going to make enemies or you're going to make problems. Christ, of course, as always in his wisdom, doesn't answer in the way they think he has to. I'm sure in their head they thought there's only two answers and he's going to mess up either way. But Christ said, no, there's not only two. There's other answers. And look at what Christ's answer was. He says in verse 2, suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans. Wait a second. That wasn't even in the statement. I, there really is no question here. We're just told in verse 1, uh, there were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans. They didn't actually ask him a question. I think they intended for him to give an answer. He doesn't really even respond to what the comment was. He kind of brings it in a different direction and says, hey, some of you probably thought the Galileans were actually extreme sinners because of what happened to them. By the way, I'm sure there's some that did. They thought these Galileans, foolish rebels, sinners, you know, not very bright, and so they had a, they had a very violent end to their foolishness. Christ says, but here let me tell you the truth. He says in verse 3, I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. What does that mean? If you don't repent of your sins, you will die in a similar manner as the Galileans. Now, outside of the Bible, there are other texts that tell us a lot of the history surrounding the time of Christ. One particular text is Josephus. He's a historian. He was a Jew. He was not a follower of Christ, but he was uh, alive during that time and had firsthand knowledge of things that took place. <clears throat> We're told that... Um, the, towards the end of the uh, first century, that the, the Jews uh, finally rebelled, a lot of them, against the Roman Empire and basically said, we've had enough and we don't want to be under your rule any longer. And uh, we're told the Roman Empire marched in and on more than one occasion uh, killed many of the Jews. And very similar to this, uh, in their towns, in their temples where they were seeking refuge, and they also died. And so Christ was essentially giving a prophecy here that if you do not repent, you will also have a violent end like the Galileans. Now, basically, the Galileans didn't die because they were less of a sinner or more of a sinner, more foolish or less foolish. They died because they were living in sin against God, and in their sin, they died a violent death. And in your sin, you will also die a violent death. He says in verse 4, Or those 18 upon whom the tower of Shalom fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all the men that dwelt in Jerusalem. I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall also likewise perish. That some people just die. And it's not that God is killing them because of their sins, but God is allowing violent ends to come to those who are not under God's protection, who are not for God. That doesn't mean that if you are for God, you'll live forever. It doesn't mean if you are for God, you also won't have a violent end. He's just basically stating that these weren't necessarily direct judgments on these people. These were just acts that happened to those who are living violent lives, or the Galileans, or those who are just living lives apart from God and not under his protection, those with the Shalom, the Tower of Shalom. As a Christian, I have this confidence that if I die, violent or otherwise, or when I die, I'm going to die, when I die, violent or otherwise, my death will only be because God allowed it. God had a plan for it. God had to, a, a, a part of his will included my death in some way. I am confident of that because I am completely in God's hands, completely in God's will. 
For those outside of God's will, those who live outside of God's protection, cannot be guaranteed of such a thing. They also are going to die. But will their death be due to God's timing? You can't claim that. Their, their death may be to some random act. Their death may be to do choices of others. Uh, well, you know, God must have planned it that way or they would not have died. Look, if you're not under God's protection, then your death may or may not be due to God saying, your time is up on this earth. You've got to die right now. People die. God set up the world where people die. I want my life to mean something, and when I die, I want my death to mean something. Those are both guaranteed when I'm walking with Christ. When I'm walking away from Christ, neither one of those are guaranteed. My life is not guaranteed to mean anything if I'm walking from Christ. My death is not guaranteed to mean anything if I'm walking away from Christ. Yes, it's possible that when walking away from Christ, my death could be a direct judgment from God, but that's not always the case. I do not believe that those who die in hurricanes, tornadoes, fires are being judged by God. I don't believe that. I believe often the case is just we live in a cursed world where horrible things happen, and death is part of that. God is not judging every single person that dies every millisecond of time. The general overall judgment of death is upon all of us because of sin. So I'm going to experience that. I am going to, and I'm willing to. But I know that living for Christ, when that judgment falls on me, it will be in God's plan. These, the Shalom and the Galileans, were not living in God's plan. And so their death was either brought on their own head. The Galileans brought their death on their own hands by fighting a political rebel war they could not win. They brought it on themselves. Those killed by the Tower of Shalom didn't necessarily bring it on themselves, but just chance happened, and they died. But neither of their deaths meant anything because Christ specifically states, you'll die in a like manner, a useless death, a violent death even, if you're not walking with me if you don't repent. You cannot escape death, but you can escape a useless death. A death without purpose, that you can escape. And you can only escape it by running toward God. So, let's move on to the parable of the barren fig tree, which is what we're really talking about. That was, this is kind of prefacing this parable. So immediately after saying that, he says this parable, verse 6. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dressers of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I have come seeking fruit on the fig tree and find none. Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? If you know anything about plants and trees, you realize that uh, all of them need water, even weeds. And so the more plants, trees, and weeds you have in the ground... Uh, the less water they all get. They all have to share the same water in that general area. So if you have something you really want to grow, then you eliminate the other things you don't want to grow to give the thing you do want to grow more access to water and sunlight, right, that, and minerals in the, in the soil. That's just, if you want to help plants grow, you got to know that. So this, this farmer, he goes to this fig tree and says, this thing is useless. It has no fruit. It's taking up the minerals from the ground. It's taking the sunlight from other uh, plants nearby, and it's sucking up the water from the ground, and it has no fruit. What's the point of leaving it up? Well, one of, one of the dressers of the vineyard, one of the workers, must have really loved this fig tree. He actually fights for the fig tree and says, hey, give me a little longer. Give me a chance 
to, uh, to, to help it, to prune it back, to, to maybe put some mulch around it, some fertilizer around it, to help it bring fruit. Give me one year. And if after a year it bears fruit, my, worth, my work is well worth it. If after a year it does not bear fruit, then you know, obviously you're the master. Do whatever you want. I'm just asking. Give me a year. The parable does not end with us telling, with it telling us what the master's response is. In this text, we're just told of the request. Knowing that the master represents God and knowing the heart of God, I am, I am pretty sure the answer was you got a year. Let's see what you can do. What a challenge. We as parents, we as teachers in church and in schools are surrounded constantly by people in our lives who are bearing no fruit. And God, at some point, is going to say, judgment will fall. They're running from me. They're living violent lives. They're living destructive lives. Judgment will fall. What can our response be when God looks at our children, someone else's child that is under our care in a school, in church? What can our response be? God, give me a year. Give me some time. I'm going to really focus on this tree. I'm going to prune it. I'm going to take some things out of its life, out of his or her life, that is hindering it from growing fruit. I'm going to, I'm going to uh, show it care and love. I was told the other day uh, by, by someone, they, they know someone that sings to their plants. I don't think that that's rare, I guess. A lot of people do that. I, I'm not one of them, and probably a good thing they probably wouldn't survive if I sang to them. But they sing to their plants. So, I mean, that, I, I, my thoughts are, look, it's probably not the singing, but if you, are, if you love that plant enough to sing to it, you're doing everything else right. So it's the everything else that is helping it. The singing is just evidence of how much you love that plant, in my personal opinion. But I am very aware there are some who, who claim scientifically singing helps plants. I'm not sure how you can claim that, but there are some that do. I haven't done enough research to know, I guess, one way or the other. But... This idea of this person, this worker saying, I love this fig tree so much. Please give me a chance. I, I think I can help bring some fruit, even a little bit of fruit, in the right direction. That is my heart. For those who come to Mid-State Christian Academy, that is my heart. God, give us a year. Help us foster fruit in the life of this child. Help us, whether it's some pruning, taking some things out, some direction, some redirection, some love and compassion. God, help us. Give us a little more time. Don't, don't end the chance yet. And knowing the heart of God, I believe his answer will be, I'll give you time. I wonder in this parable, you know, you could just look at the farmer as just a cruel man chopping trees down everywhere. I wonder if the farmer was just looking for someone who would step up. I wonder if the farmer was just encouraging the worker to try a little harder. Hey, it's been three years, been done nothing. There's weeds around it. They're sucking up the minerals and the, and the water. It's, it's becoming fruitless. It's been fruitless. And the worker's probably thinking, oh, man, you know, I've neglected that tree. That's why it's fruitless. It's, I mean, I, the tree has what it needs inside of it to grow fruit, right? It's a tree. So there's a reason why it's not growing fruit. I wonder if the worker, and I'm reading a lot deeper in the parable than is given here, right? I'm just kind of my own experience, I guess you might say. I wonder if, if this was applied to me in a Christian school or you in a, in a setting with, with people in your life. Could it be, you know what? I know why there's no fruit. I've been neglecting. Neglecting my job, my responsibility. I've been so focused on me. I've been so overwhelmed. 
that I know why there's not. And I know that if I was to focus, there would be some fruit. Give me some time. Let me refocus. Let me redirect. And could it be that God is just asking us to do our jobs? To do what needs to be done. So that the people who are in our lives can start bearing fruit. Which leads us to another section of the Bible. And I want to end with this. We're going to turn to Mark. A very well-known parable. The parable of the sower. So let's go to Mark chapter 4. And after looking at the fig tree, after seeing this worker asking for more time, believing that the fig tree can do better than it did, Let's take a look now at the parable of the sower and the seeds. Chapter 4, verse 1 of Mark. And he began again to teach by the seaside. And there was gathered unto him a great multitude. He entered into a ship, sat at the sea. The whole multitude was by the sea on the land, and he taught them many things by parables. Verse 3. Behold, there went out a sower to sow. It came to pass, as he sowed, some fell by the wayside. The fowls of the air came and devoured it up. Some fell on stony ground, where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. And the other fell on good ground and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased and brought forth some thirty, sixty, hundred. Verse 9, he that hath ears, let him hear. Now we're told there's some verses in between. Uh, the, the disciples in other passages say, what do those parables mean? What's going on? And Christ explains the parable. Verse 14, the sower soweth the word, so the seeds is truth. That's what's being sowed, truth, the truth of God's word. And these are they by the wayside where the word is sown, the truth is sown. But when they have heard, Satan cometh immediately, taketh away the word that was sown in their hearts. So in this parable, You have four different types of ground, soil, and the first one is the unsaved. Obviously, we all begin as unsaved. These remain unsaved. Why do they remain unsaved? Not because they didn't hear the truth, but because before they acted on the truth, before they embraced the truth that they heard, Satan, his demons, the flesh, the world, distracted them from the truth they just heard, and essentially snatch that truth from their mind, from their memory, from their thoughts, so they no longer dwelt on the truth, no longer thought on the truth. These people heard the truth, failed to act on it, and throughout the course of the day, eventually forgot it altogether. Throughout the course of the week, forgot they even heard the truth. Within years, forgot that there even was truth. (laughs) They remain unsaved. Now, I have found... Most of the men that I speak to about this parable, they believe all four soils represent different kinds of people, and in most, they believe the first three soils represent the unsaved, and only one represents the saved. And again and again, I find that preachers, pastors, commentaries, theologians keep saying the only saved is the fourth soil, the one that brings fruit. Why do they say that? Well, because they believe that if you are saved, you will bring fruit. And if you don't bring fruit, you're not saved. So therefore, if you believe that, you must also believe this parable only has one type of saved ground, and that's the last one, because that's the only one that brings fruit. 
I would challenge the initial belief that the saved always bring forth fruit that can be seen. I would challenge that because I don't see that in Scripture. I don't see that mandate. I don't see that clearly stated. If you are saved, you will bring forth fruit that everyone can see. I actually see the opposite. I see where some are saved as by fire. I see where some are saved where everything is burnt away and nothing remains except them, and they get to go to heaven, but they have no works to bring into heaven. I see where God tells us that he chastises those he loves. I see that he talks about chastisement resulting in the, a sin unto death, where even the saved can live in sin so much that God eventually takes them home. They die, but they will go to heaven. I don't believe that Christians are guaranteed to bring forth a plethora of fruit. I believe that Christians should bring forth fruit. I believe Christians can bring forth fruit. I don't believe they always will at all times, if, if ever for some. Why not? I believe this parable tells us why. So the only ground that's unsaved is the first because God clearly states before the truth had anywhere to go, it was taken from them, they got distracted, they did not embrace it, they did not get saved. All right, let's look at the second ground. Verse uh, 16, and these are they likewise which are sown on stony ground, who when they have heard the word, immediately receive it. The truth is not just heard, it is received. And I think that's the difference between the first and second ground. The first one did not receive it. The second did, which to me is salvation. I know we are talking parables, and I know parables are ambiguous. And that's why the disciples said, what did that mean? What are you saying? Because it is ambiguous. If it was so clear, the disciples would not say, what does it mean? I get that. But I do believe Christ is giving some pretty clear details, specifically verse 16. It was received. They were saved. Well, if they were saved, Russ, then why didn't they bring forth fruit? I'll tell you why, verse 17. And have no root in themselves, and so endure, but for a time afterward, when affliction or persecution ariseth, for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. Now, there are some that would say, if they were really saved, there would be roots. No. Salvation is not growing roots. Salvation is accepting truth, embracing truth, having faith through the truth you heard about Christ. The roots are grown over time through something called discipleship mentorship, drawing closer to Christ. I believe the second ground is the undiscipled. They got saved when they were young in a bus ministry. They got saved when they were teenagers at a youth conference. They got saved as adults at a revival. Were never invited back to church, never went back to church. Messed up their lives. Made bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. And I believe that these undiscipled Individuals who did truly recognize they were sinners, who did truly recognize Christ as Savior, who did hear the truth and accept the truth, were never brought into the fold by someone who loved God and loved them and showed them deeper truths than just salvation. These undiscipled never grew roots. And so when the sun comes up and beats down on them, when times get tough, they fell. How can you blame them? How can we expect someone even who's saved but never discipled, how can we expect them to stand strong on truth they've never been told, they've never been taught, they, they don't understand? How can we expect them to stand on that truth? Well, they have the Holy Spirit. They have the Holy Spirit, then they will stand. Oh, come on. Be honest with yourself for a second. You have the Holy Spirit. How many times have you fallen? More than you know how to count. Well, I always got back up. That's not the point. Did you fall? 
Well, yeah, but I got back up. That's not the point. Did you fall? Yeah. All right. So you can fall even if you have the Holy Spirit, right? Yes, I can. Okay, but I got back up. I get that. Why did you get back up? Because you were discipled. Because you were given more truth to get back up with. That's why you got back up. No, I got back up because I had the Holy Spirit. Look, you got to show me in Scripture the reason for your belief system that everyone who has the Holy Spirit will always get back up. I don't see that in the Word of God. I do see a just man will fall seven times and get back up, but a just man is a man who knows truth and follows truth. That's a just man. That would be the definition of a just man in the Old Testament. A just man in the Old Testament didn't actually have the Holy Spirit. He did not indwell believers. It was knowing and following truth that got you back up. Not being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Obviously, that's a big help. I am so glad I have the Holy Spirit. But we fall, even with the Holy Spirit. And some stay fallen for quite some time. Well, brother, if you have the Holy Spirit in your life, if you're truly saved, you may fall, but you won't stay falling away. You'll come back to God eventually. Really, how long? What's the time frame? Um, Can you be saved and run from God for 50 years? Not possible, they would say. Interesting. Can you show me Scripture? No, it's just not possible. Okay. Can you be saved and run from God for 20 years? Not possible. Can you show me Scripture? No, but it's not possible. Can you be saved and run from God for 10 years? Not possible. How is that? Well, it's just not possible. No one one that's truly saved would ever be apart from God for 10 years. Okay. How about five years? Okay, that's possible. I could see a Christian being saved but being away from God for five years. Really? Okay. Can you show me in Scripture how five years is okay but not 10? No, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that a Christian would be away for 10 years. But, you know, five years, I get it. One year? Oh, yeah, definitely one year. Why? Well, because King David, okay, well, at least now we're using Scripture. Yeah, King David, he was away from God for a year, right? And that man had the Holy Spirit in his life, right? The Holy Spirit came upon him when it left Saul. So we know David wasn't dwelt by the Holy Spirit. That man fell with Bathsheba and ran from God for at least a year plus. So they're comfortable, they being those who think that it's not possible to fall and stay down, They're comfortable saying, you can fall and be down for a little bit, a year at least because of David, but after that, it's guesswork, but it definitely can't be 10 plus years. But there's no scripture to say that. So unfortunately, this parable is not interpreted through scripture. It's interpreted through a philosophy that Christians will bear fruit and a philosophy that a Christian will not stay down. That's a philosophy, not a theology you don't see it in Scripture. Well, 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 well. What about this idea that if you want to, to make it to the end, you won't fall away? And those that do fall away were never gods to begin with. Huh? What about that? Well, then we're back to, first of all, if they fell away from a year, are they away from God? Because you'd probably claim that they were. They were from, away from God. Oh, they're not saved. They came back. Oh, maybe they were saved after all. Maybe we were wrong. It's all guesswork anyways. But second of all, this idea of falling away doesn't mean they fell down and didn't get up. Falling away means they abandoned truth altogether. They, they admitted that they never, they never believed it. They rejected it altogether. It was all just a game for them. It was a ploy, and, and it finally came out that they were never true followers to begin with of truth. We're not talking about someone who was saved, fell down, and then lost their salvation, obviously, nor are we talking about a Christian who, who doesn't know truth, only knows salvation, and fell because of being undiscipled, now never being saved. We're talking about someone who was in truth, under truth, knew truth, and then says, you know what, I've been living a lie the whole time. I don't believe in it. That's who we're talking about. That's the ones who fell away, and Christ said, now you'll know they never were part because they basically essentially admitted it. Undiscipled. 
You're not going to bear fruit if you're undiscipled. A lot of churches focusing a lot of time on people getting saved and then abandoning them altogether afterwards, moving on to the next. And then we find the unfocused. These may have been discipled. They may have been mentored. We read in uh, verse 18, and, they are they, and these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things entering in choke the word and it becometh unfruitful. So it doesn't say that they did or did not have roots. I think the implication is they did have roots. I'm thinking they probably at least had some truth in their lives above and beyond salvation, had some discipleship. But in the end, they said, you know what? Um, I love the world more. You know, I've known people like this, people that if you ask them, does there a God? Yes. Did Jesus exist? Yes. Did he die on the cross? Yes. Are you saved? Yes. Do you go to church? No. Do you follow truth? No. <laughs> and they might have different reasons and different justifications for that, but they are not bearing fruit this side of heaven. Why? Because they've chosen to follow the pleasures of this life over God. It does not mean they're not saved. It means that in their salvation, they don't want to do anything that brings glory to God. In their salvation, they don't want to further God's kingdom. And then we're back to that conversation earlier. Well, Pastor us, if they were saved, they would want to. Who are you lying to? Guys, I'm a pastor. There's days where I don't want to, okay? I do it because I love God. I do it because I know God loves me. And I'll tell you, more often than not, it's because God loves me. It's not because I'm a better man than anyone else, but when I consider how much God loves me, I think, if no other reason, that's why I'll do it. God loves me. But there are days where I don't want to do what I need to do. I don't want to do what I know that I should do. Don't tell me that if you're saved, you will always want to do right. You're lying to yourself, and you're lying to me. Don't tell me if you're saved, you will never be tempted to, to follow the ways of the world or to accept what the world offers. Come on now. We know that's not true. We know there's days where you, you think, I wonder what it would be like to have all those things. I wonder what it would be like to have all that power, all that popularity. I wonder what it would be like, and you fill in the blank. Of course the temptation is there. And of course you've considered it throughout your Christian life. Unfortunately for these, they didn't just consider it. They acted on it. They turned their back, and they embraced. They embraced what the world has to offer. Look, they didn't lose their salvation. If they're saved, they're saved, but they've lost a lot of opportunity. Lost a lot of potential to glorify God. That they have lost. And if they die, they will go to heaven if they're saved. But they will die as by fire. There will be nothing they'll bring to heaven. It will all be burned away. There will be no crowns to throw at the feet of Christ. That is not why I do what I do. I do what I do because God loves me, first and foremost. Secondly, because I love him. Thirdly, due to my love for him, I want to glorify him. That is the order. And it starts with God loving me. Because I want to glorify him, because I love him, because he loves me, there will be crowns I will throw at his feet. But that's only a benefit. It's not the motivation. And then finally, verse 20. And these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it and bring forth fruit, some 30, 60, 100. Now, first of all, not all Christians bring forth the same amount of fruit. But they're all the good soil. Because some sow, some reap. It is not the better Christians bring forth the more fruit. 
It is those who have good soil in their lives will bring forth fruit, and God will determine the amount. I am so grateful for that truth. It's not a competition between you and me. It's not a, I'm better than you, but worse than them. It is, I love God. Why? Because he loves me, and therefore I will glorify him. Welcome to the team. Now let God use you as he wills. For some, that will be more fruit than others. More salvation seen in their ministry, in their life, personal or otherwise. God will be glorified more, more opportunities to glorify God in some lives than others. How many millions, tens of millions of of preachers have died over thousands of years of human history that no one today knows their name? Doesn't mean they loved God any less. Doesn't mean they didn't seek to glorify God any less. And yet how many few names we know impacted the world? Very few. Doesn't mean they loved God anymore. God chose a different path for some. You know who did know their name? God, every one of them. God knew every one of their names. That's what counts. We as Christians are not in competition with other Christians. Meriden Hills is not in competition with other churches. I don't, I honestly, and I hope you believe this, I do not care how many people are in this church. You know what I care about? Is God in this church? If God is in this church, then just one person makes me smile. One more person brings joy to my heart because they're coming to where God is. I am not joyful. I don't smile because one more body walked into this room on Sunday morning. I am joyful because one more soul will connect with God who is here. That is my ultimate desire, that God is with us, among us, as we are with him, dwelling with him. And if God is here, then whether it's three, 300, or 3,000, God is here. And that's what matters. And for a church who, as a body, not a person, I don't do this, as a body, for a church who, as a body, comes to God and says, hey, you gave us three souls, one of which is me. We, we are bringing three souls to you, fed, healthy, here. God says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And for a church body that meets their maker in the end and says, you gave us 300 souls. Here are 300 souls that we kept uh, fed and healthy. God says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And for a church of 3,000 that says, you gave us 3,000 souls. And boy, was it hard, but we have these 3,000 souls for you. God says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. It's the same answer for everyone. Yes, the rewards might differ. And honestly, I care very little for the rewards. You know, what the, actually, the rewards are kind of funny. The rewards is just more authority, more opportunity to, for more responsibility <laughs> later during the millennial reign. Uh, I've got to be a little frank with you there, too. I've got to have my fill this side of the millennial reign. I don't know that I need more during the millennial reign. Like, I'd be completely happy if God said, Russ, you are the, you are the local lifeguard at the beach. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Like, I honestly do not need to be over any kind of uh, kingdom or school during the millennial reign. If God chooses that, obviously, you know, who are we to say no to God? But I am not seeking that. I am not saying, God, give me 3,000 souls. I, I can be a king under you. I, I have, that is not my heart's desire. Anyone who is, more power to you. But my heart's desire are the health of the souls that God has placed in my life, that I would be a part of their journey of health towards God. That's my desire, however many they are. 
And whatever reward God gives is up to God, and I don't lose sleep over either way. So, the good soil. What is the good soil? Well, let's look back to our barren tree. This barren tree was not in good soil. It wasn't the tree's fault. It was the soil's fault. And that worker was saying, let me help this tree bring forth fruit. So, these three types of soils, which I believe very strongly are all saved, what can we do? Well, the first one is eliminate the rocks so it can bring roots. What does that mean? Disciple. Let them hear deeper truths so they can go deeper. The second type of saved person, eliminate the cares of this life that are constantly before them. That is one of my biggest concerns for this generation. There are so many evil things in the world. Evil, downright evil things. And on top of that, there are so many things that aren't evil, but they're just easy and distract us easily. The easy compared with the evil, like what chance does the next generation have? What chance do they have when they're surrounded by the easy and the evil? And so if we want them to bear fruit, we've got to address the soil. Eliminate those weeds surrounding them, the easy and the evil. And give the soil a chance to feed that plant. The easy and the evil. That does not mean live the life of a monk or a nun. But be wise in what you allow in the life of the children of your life. And if you do, and if you foster that soil as that worker wanted to do for that fig tree, if you clean out that soil, you are now setting up the tree, in this case the plants, to bring forth fruit. Do not just cross your fingers and pray, or you will regret the end result. You must be purposeful, because if you are not, you will be the worker who has to go to God and say, you know what, God, I failed. Give me a year. I'll put some purpose into it and watch what happens next. How about this? Put purpose into them now, them now. Don't wait to God's about to bring judgment. Then say, hold back, give me some time. Do it now. The people in your life that you love, purposefully help them prepare their soil for fruit. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your people, those listening online, those in this room, that we would recognize the need for good soil in our lives and the lives of those we love. That we would see that salvation is not enough. There needs to be discipleship. There needs to be a clearing away of the easy and the evil that distracts us from truth and from you. I pray that we would love you, knowing you love us, and because of that, seek to bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.